2: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
1: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 310. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy, ready for a new show. I hope so. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have the part two of Poetry Planet Rising Showcase by Diane Severson. Just going to play the full poem there for that one. And the main fiction is a new writer too. Starship Silver, David J. Swartz. Story called Today's Friends. That's what's coming up in today's show. Now, right at the end... I'm going to play, because I'm going to do a big announcement probably next week on the show. If anyone follows us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Google+, Plus, you'll have been seeing lots of photographs of different items I've been kind of putting up there and saying, you know, there's something wonderful going to happen to sofa notes. Well, it's probably next week, well where I'm going to be announcing what's happening, what's going on, what the plans are for world domination. So if you want to kind of just get a glimpse or a feel of what's going on, actually the clue I'm going to leave you at the end of the show, you will have no idea, not a chance. But the clue is there in the making. So that'll be right at the very end. So we'll get into part two of Diane Stevenson's Portrait Planet. Diane!
2: Oh, and welcome to this special edition of Poetry Planet. We are making a return visit to the Reisling Award because we have one more poem to listen to, Wade German's The Necromantic Wine, which tied for third place. If you didn't catch the first, second, and the other two third place poems in the Reisling Award showcase, you can hear them in Starship Sofa number 309. Wade German's poems have appeared internationally in numerous journals and anthologies, including Dark Horizons, Dreams and Nightmares, Heroic Fantasy Quarterly, Midnight Echo, Mythic Delirium, Nameless, Phantom Drift, Space and Time, Starlines, Strange Sorcery, and Weird Fiction Review. Wade says the necromantic wine was inspired by George Sterling's A Wine of Wizardry and Clark Ashton Smith's The Hashish Eater two poems which I have read again and again with a never-ending fascination. Both are replete with bizarre, hallucinatory imagery and ideas sprung from the dark, fantastic imagination. But for the most part, they are very different poems, with perhaps the exception that both convey a sense of voyaging into the unfamiliar, of questing for the unknown. It was that sense of voyage and quest that I was after when I wrote The Necromantic Wine." The Necromantic Wine by Wade German Where wattled dragons redly gape That guard a cowled magician Peering on the damned through vials Wherein a splendid poison burns George Sterling In simultaneous ruin All my dreams fall like a rack of fuming vapors Raised to semblance by a necromant and leaving spirit and sense unthinkably alone above a universe of shrouded stars. Clark Ashton Smith The blood-red sun begins its slow descent behind the distant, jagged line of peaks. From this clear vantage on the flagstone roof, where I have made a final hermitage of this abandoned tower in deep woods, I watch those giant granite faces turn from shades of gray to shades of cobalt blue. And there above them, gliding on great wings, I see the silver dragons in their flight, returning to their eyries and high keeps, The cool autumnal winds around me gust, and now about me whirls a weirder breeze, which whispers in my ear a rhyming rune, and so an elemental speaks to me of her day's wanderings across the world, and up into our planet's airless zones that limited her flight to view the stars behind the vault of deep cerulean. And now the wind grows wilder, she departs to seek ethereal games with her own kind, amongst the changeling colors of the clouds, a flame in twilight's final renderings. The air grows cooler, so I step inside and settle in beside the flame-fed hearth to warm my bones and smoke my briar pipe and lounging in narcotic quietude, I sip pale yellow wine and contemplate the subtle incantations of the night. But mortal issues rise to cloud my thought. The same gray ghost that lately haunts the nights of this my ancient age by sorcery sustained so many years beyond its span, it seems I have grown weary of the world. In youth, pursuit of wisdom was my quest, and wonder that bright star, had served as guide. But somewhere in the passing centuries its incandescence dwindled, nearly dead, that fulgent glow of wonder has gone out, with what to stir the embers just a bit. Despite the learning of three hundred years, I never have held counsel with the dead. I have but theories Any anyone might have of death's dimension and what lies beyond, Ancestral imprecations on black arts Have kept my line from straying to that gate But lately I have pondered that old pact For there are other ways to gain the roads Which dark magicians tread to seek strange truths I need not raise a corpse from its repose By crude reanimation Or invoke the wraiths who linger at unquiet graves I need not deal with ghouls in catacombs who sup on foul corruption in the crypt. Nor need I bow to idols of dark gods, such methods so impious and perverse. There is a rarer magic, more refined, and suited to an acolyte of taste, who would not risk an old familial curse. I once discovered in a desert tomb strange hieroglyphs engraved upon a stone that mentioned of a necromantic wine. A darkling ruby wine of filtered spells, distilled in huge alembics of a dream a demigod once dreamt, who, dying, spilled the poison in a glass canopic jar attendant demons slew each other for. Another mention of the wine is here, in this Lemurian scroll. It is described as wine both sweet and bitter to the tongue, with mystic operations on the mind, inscribing arcane words of alchemy. In one grimoire, the potion is compared to green absinthe, pale opalescent drops evolving in the poet-prophet's brow, a third eye blazing like a demon star that sees behind occulted nature's veil. And one old Libram notes the legend well, but states the ruby potion is composed of substances abused by oracles, the pollen of black loti thrice refined and alkaloids from flowers of the moon, affording hypnagogic properties on those who seek to see the dead in dreams. And such I know of necromantic wine. Who knows for sure what wisdom it imparts? I have a bottle here, There is one thing betwixt this rare elixir's spell and me. The cork. A darkness washes over me, mere moments after sipping from the glass. I shudder as a mist invades my mind, the potion working like an anodyne. My pulse throbs slowly, thudding as in sleep. A sense of distance gathers in my head, The chamber walls and ceiling now withdraw, and all the candles glimmer distantly like witch lights in a black expanding pool. I feel my body sink into the couch and feel its fabric fray and then dissolve. My atoms scatter as a thing destroyed, Thus, disembodied and by wraith winds borne, I am conveyed across the gulfs of night and outer voids of undimensioned space as swift hallucinations pass me by, successive strange horizons which unfold like tapestries, their imagery arrayed in vast prismatic patterns which reveal the surfaces of endless unknown worlds." strange vales and vistas, alien terrains with protean shores awash in pulsing hues, the span of all their suns and pendant moons. But now the swarming throng of orbs disperse and vanish out beyond my vision's reach to merge with infinite immensities. Now, in a region of black space, I see a planet out of chaos, newly formed— Enormous storms that feed electric bale sweep red primordial skies with raving winds as climates alternate in swift extremes. Below the raging upper atmosphere, volcanoes bleed with endless lava flows, and crimson rivers web a rifted main which quakes in primal night devoid of life. And as the orb around its sun revolves, Its smoking cauldron surface stills and cools, And on it protoplasmic ichor gels. Amoebic life-forms mindlessly evolve And multiply at blind, malignant rate. The ancestors that spawn a fledgling race, Which treads across the dawns of centuries, I see imperiums arise in time And just as swiftly witness their declines, by mode of nature or by work of man. The cities lie collapsed in sunken seas or buried in abyssals of black sand. The landscape quickly molders and decays. The orb is now a planetary tomb where only subtle shadows faintly flit among the shrines and toppled monuments. Again, the vision fades, All sense deranged, I hurtle through the interstellar deeps, and pass through regions of galactic cloud, where I behold vast nurseries of stars, which gleam like hellish rubies, xanthics, pearls, and fiery opals blazing into birth. Then, further, on accelerated course, through unlit oceans of the outer dark until my flight decelerates in zones where time's great gears have shuddered to a halt. I stand upon the rim of the unknown. Below me swirls a strange phantasmal sea in which converge wild raving cosmic streams that gutter in fantastic cataracts to feed the swirling whirlpool gulfs below. As if supplied by black and sorcelled lamps, a weird, dark radiance illumines all. And from the gulf, huge shadow things arise, twin ebon-bodied winged leviathans with twisted limbs and long colossal claws. They gather up dark matter in the gloom and from that substance raise a massive gate by thaumaturgic gestures. From its arch, weird vortices of ectoplasm pour, and in the gyrings, shapes of varied race rise up and multiply in manifold familiar shade, or take far stranger forms phantasmagoric as in fever dream. Of titans, giants, gnomish folk and imps, and goblin beings, gargoyle-headed men, and centaurs side by side with saurians, scale-tailed and crystal-eyed in phantom ways, and white arachnids, weirdly humanoid, which stride in spectral unison with things emerged from some mad god's menagerie, pale luminescent algaes, many-eyed and faceless fungoid creatures, webbed and winged, odd floating orbs of psychic energy and other fabled forms innumerable of otherworldly unknown origins. Now one thin wraith among the spectral throng, who is the only sample of his race, drifts forward as their sole ambassador, and though he has no mouth with which to speak, I understand his language in my mind— we come in wonder awe and in our woe in death united and our knowledge pooled for what a shade has known all shades now know that one upon our portal is alive who treaded stars to seek our nebula among our legions are the kings and queens The viziers, priests, and wizards, generals of dynasties long dead, which ruled in realms on planets orbiting the million suns your Almagests and Testaments assign, as white Subhal and golden Azimek, blue Algol and pale Rose Aldebaran, as orange fomalhaut and Betelgeuse, and Kabalatrab, red and emerald green, and Jenib, Iklil, Menkar, Deneb, Thuban, Zedaron Zorak Zubin el-Janubi. the alphas, betas, gammas in your charts, which form the signs and symbols of the night, the iconography of zodiacs, the Murfolk who once lived in cities spread beneath eternal vaults of lunar ice. The globe-like beings of gas-giant worlds who dwelled and drifted in pacific zones of atmosphere which, like a cauldron, brood huge brooding storms that gathered gloom and churned with centuries of crimson turbulence. And others of an ever-changing shape, for their true form is formlessness itself, who mimic those with whom they would converse and those who once inhabited no world but flourished on the interstellar winds like motes of pollen borne upon the air and beings who once lived eternities perceived by others as a moment brief like flashings of the subatomic sparks and others from an astral lineage who lived and died existences unseen by those perceiving only matter's molds And those enormous shadows over there, Whose brows are furrowed by colossal glooms, The ghostly pantheon of all our gods, Whose avatars still haunt forgotten fanes On worlds reclaimed by vast eternal night In futile hope some acolyte of theirs Might kindle at their altars some old faith. Behold our ranks and files, The phantom host that hails from sectors of the galaxy, a spiral cluster which, remotely viewed from outer regions of the void, must seem a mere amoeba in an ocean's mouth, whose own blind, futile gropings barely touch the cold indifference of the universe." the spirit legions all around me swirl like priests and ministers who would convene an exorcism or some awful rite, discouraging my reeling mind with fear, but speak instead of the unimagined truths of lost religions, sciences, and arts advanced by eon-ancient wizardries they practiced once and offered tutelage in ways no sage or scholar could refuse— But now their eldritch whisperings grow mute. The vision fades, and rising from the fumes that curl in primal chaos on my mind, I hear a mausolean ocean's roar, and in it all the voices of the void break on emergent mist-enshrouded shores, disperse in hissing echoes and recede to voiceless shallows and the gloom-fed deeps. All's silent now. Again, I am alone amid the vapors of a vanished dream. The chamber walls and ceilings are restored. My body has not moved, although I feel a distant ravaged traveler returned to porch and portal in transfigured night. And by the measure of an antique clock, I know my voyage was a moment's dream evolved from out of only half a glass. I have the answer to my query now, I must imbibe much deeper. I would know the mysteries those hosts of ghosts would teach. Upon the threshold of their ebon gate, I shall convoke and summon forth a guide to lead the way beyond. Then will I be enlightened for a strange eternity, or overwhelmed by horror in the end? I quaff the strange elixir once again, and shudder as a mist invades my mind. Familiars, take from me these fleshy robes, then heap upon them these, my ancient bones. This sorcerer departs. Now wasn't that fun? You'll never innocently drink a glass of wine again, huh? Thank you for joining me for this tag-along extra edition of Poetry Planet. A special thank you to Wade for being a good sport and to Tony for squeezing this into this week's show. That'll do it for the Riesling Awards Showcase. Join me next time for this year's SFPA contest winning poetry. And this is me signing out.
1: There you go. Diane, thank you so much. Now, just before as well, what I should have mentioned at the beginning of the show, and Adam's always leaving this lovely show note, And normally I kind of go in, you know, and I read the bios and everything like that, delete them and just have, you know, if anyone's been over to Starship Sova and has seen the page, you know, fact, poetry planet, link to Diane's blog and, you know, main fiction and link to David's, David Swartz's blog. Well, what I'm going to do now from now on, I'm going to just leave the, the show notes there as well. So you can have a little kind of read through. At your leisure, because in David's there's lots of free stories that he's got up on, kind of different, you know, in places. And if you want to go over there and just, you know, if you like David's story, this one today's friends, and if you want a bit more of David's work, yes, you can go to the site, but there's direct links there to stories as well. So from now, I'm going to leave the bio in there. And I think, yes, it's a cheat. You know, it's only what, show 310. <laughs> that not took as long to work that little darling out. So there you go. Well, we'll get into the main fiction, and like I say, it's by David J. Swartz, and the story's called Today's Friends. David J. Swartz carries Minnesota with him in a small camel-coloured attaché with a combination lock. It can only be opened by taking the number of hairs on F. Scott Fitzgerald's head, dividing it by the secret formula on the Kensington runestones, and adding the ghostly cry of a loon in brackets, usually a negative number. If found, please return to the nearest person wearing flannel. I love that word, flannel. (laughs) Because his luggage is full of lakes, he keeps his stories in his head. Sometimes they make it onto paper. They have appeared in numerous publications, including anthologies, fantasy, best of year 2007, the best of Lady Churchill's Rosebud wristlet, and the World Fantasy Award nominated 20 Epics. And like I say, there's a lot of stories that you can read of David, and I've got the the links are there now. David has lived in Chicago and Madison, Wisconsin. He now resides in St. Paul, where he was born and raised. He holds a BA in Scandinavian Studies from the University of Wisconsin at Madison and Masters in Library Science from the University of Illinois. He would like to set them down somewhere, but not before he figures out a way to use them. He likes over tea. Oh, no, David! No! No, man! That's not right, I'm talking from an Englishman. You don't do that. No! It's no! If I'd known that! If I'd known that! Oh, there would have been some no! And he feels superior for not owning a car and streets paved with brick. Today's story is narrated by Adam Von Buehler. Adam is a lifelong science fiction obsessive living in Boston. He's also known for his electric rock band Anarchy Club, who appeared in the Guitar Hero and Rock Band games in the Impossible category. Hey, how cool is that? Go on there, Adam. So, the Starship Sova is Very Proud to Present.
0: Today's Friends by David J. Schwartz Silent engines and generators are one thing. What gets me are the birds. When the greys first got here, they couldn't leave the birds alone. They were always reaching into their tiny brains, winding them up so tight that all they could do was sing their songs. Sometimes the birds' hearts would stop before they could even let out a chirp. Now the birds stay well away from the cities, and the streets are always quiet. The day it happened was a work day. I was on my way to the office. I filed out of the building and lined up on the platform with my neighbors, a pace from the person on either side. It was too quiet, and I couldn't keep still. I took out my iberry and started some e-correspondence. Not exactly meditative, I know, but it's not like I'm the only one who does it. Before the greys, I used to start conversations with people on the train, people I didn't know and would never see again. My mother used to say that my brain didn't work unless my mouth was moving. Nowadays, a keyboard is the next best thing. I typed out quick responses. Just acknowledgments, most of them. Nothing effusive. Then there was an email from my boss asking me to bring him up to speed on the Negative Space Project. And that was something I couldn't sum up in a couple of sentences. Negative Space was going to be our biggest contract in years. A habitat for the Greys... "'something completely of my own design. "'It was what got me up in the mornings. "'My thumbs started twiddling over the keys, "'and after a minute I noticed "'the woman standing next to me was staring. "'Mornings are for meditation and all that, "'so I didn't look back, but I could feel her, "'eyes like drills into my skull. "'I've got the silent eye, "'Everybody does these days, "'so I didn't think I could be bothering her that much.' Probably she just hadn't had her coffee yet, but the longer it went on, the more pissed off I got. I couldn't enjoy my email with her staring at me like that. So I cut it short, sent it, and slipped the iberry back into its holster. Then I turned to glare at her, and I realized two things simultaneously. One, a few spaces beyond her was a gray, staring at me over the heads of the other commuters, and two... I'd been humming the entire time. I stopped immediately, and the train whispered onto the platform a few seconds later. I scurried on board and took a seat at the end of the car, hoping everyone would forget my face and I'd just be a whispered anecdote at their workplaces. But the gray got on the same car, and after everyone was seated and the train started to move, it stood and began the ritual of approach. A series of gangly bows and boneless waves. I really didn't have any choice but to stand, lift my arms up over my head like I was signaling a field goal, and bow, welcome. When a grey talks, you don't hear anything. You see the messages in your mind. In my case, and as I understand it, this is true of most people who work with computers. I saw a blue screen with block text on it. "'Today's friend wishes to know what is your song?' it read. It was gone almost before I saw it. The question froze me. I didn't know the song, not really. It was a pop tune, pre-landing, obviously, and I couldn't remember most of the lyrics, let alone the title. My brain was like an engine that wouldn't catch. "'Today's friend asked you a question?' None of them have names." "'They are all pale, hairless, big-eyed. "'You can't even tell them apart except by height. "'It's always today's friend when they talk to anyone. "'This one could have been their supreme emperor for all I knew. "'Nobody on the train made a sound. "'I didn't know if the gray was broadcasting to them, "'probably not, considering that all it wanted was a song. "'But none of them looked at us. "'I wouldn't have in their place. "'I wonder if we do that because of them?' or because of us i shook my head i couldn't remember the damn song i shut my eyes because i knew what came next today's friend will help you remember invisible fingers touched my brain casting about for memories my eyes burned with the smell of smoke the roof of my mouth tickled i broke into a sweat I was wading in sense memories, as if they had been piled up on the other side of a locked door and the grey had just broken it down. Since then the door sometimes swings open of its own accord, and suddenly I'm tasting a chocolate chip cookie, burned black on the bottom, scratching a cat's belly until it calmly bites the fleshy webbing between my thumb and forefinger, watching from my office window as saucers descend out of the clouds. The greys' fingers found the memories they wanted, attached a few invisible strings, and pulled. There's a long list of things that the greys don't like, but for some reason music isn't one of them. I don't think they like it exactly, but they are fascinated by it. I saw a busker once, in the early days, perform Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, fourteen times in a row, and not by choice. There were half a dozen greys lined up in front of him, taking turns pulling his strings. You don't see buskers anymore. Like the birds, musicians have learned to stay off the streets. The mercy of what happened next was that I was barely there for it. I was remembering a movie that used the song in its soundtrack. I was driving to Racine, hearing a snippet of it on the radio— but mostly I was at my sister's place watching the Super Bowl halftime show, seeing the pop starlet whose name I still don't remember lip-syncing across the stage. I was only dimly aware of my voice matching hers, my falsetto almost tuneful. Some images, some sensations slipped through, the burn of my calves as I danced up and down the car. Running my hand, fingers splayed over the cheek of a man about my age. He'd missed a spot shaving, and he reeked of cologne. My hands were sticky from crawling along the floor of the train. The man's eyes were shut, and he looked like he wanted to scream. When I came out of it, I was crouched on the floor, hands in front, back arched, one leg curled underneath, the other stretched out to the side. Tracked-in grit dug into my palms, sweat poured down my face. Today's friend would like to hear your song again. I did the performance three times before the Grey let me out at my stop. About a dozen people got off with me. None of them looked at me. None of them laughed. One woman was crying. Someone must have texted emergency services, though, because the paramedics were waiting for me at street level. My memories were still scrambled, and I kept sliding back in time to things that had happened years before. I remember sitting in the ambulance being pissed off that they wouldn't tell me whether my car was totaled. I was back on that trip to Racine. I was feeling cold fingers in my brain. When I woke up, I was strapped to a bed in a white room. Whatever they had sedated me with was still working. I wasn't all that concerned about the fact that I couldn't move, or about anything, really. After a while, a doctor came in and sat next to the bed. "'We can talk in here,' she said. "'The room is soundproofed.' Her eyes were small and blue. Her scalp was shaved, but shaded with stubble. I was fascinated by this small act of nonconformity. When I didn't say anything, she cleared her throat. She glanced at her clipboard. "'I understand you're an architect.' I, I am? Do you know where you are? At my expression, she frowned. Let me ask you something else. What day is it? It's Super Bowl Sunday. And how did you end up here? A car pulled out in front of me, and I swerved. She stared at me like she was waiting for me to realize something. Then she turned to her clipboard and wrote something down. Where were you headed? To my sister's house. Had the game started yet? No. What was the score? Fourteen to three. She gave me that look again. I'm going to tell you a story, she said. Can you take off these restraints? I asked. Not yet. I just thought I'd ask. Your condition is not uncommon, she said. We are so alien to the greys that... "'They don't really think of us as intelligent, "'so they have no qualms about reaching into our brains like they do. "'The experience tends to produce a temporary disorientation, "'but we find that story therapy can help to clarify things for the patient. "'I'm not disoriented.' "'That's fine,' she said. "'Do you mind listening to a story anyway?' "'I guess not.' "'The doctor didn't speak right away.' I think now that she was making the decision to go off-script. I'm sure the clinic had sanctioned stories for the sort of therapy she was about to perform. Stories carefully written and edited by committees of psychologists. What she ended up telling me was something more personal. Six months ago, the doctor told me, the director of this clinic disappeared. He went out for a lunch meeting and just never came back. He was an extrovert. Most people are, and it had been tough for him since the Greys landed. We had staff workshops to try and help each other adjust to the new social norms, but Bill had more trouble than the rest of us. Being gregarious wasn't something he did, it was something he was. He used to announce himself when he entered a room by talking loudly to someone he was with, shouting hello to someone else even sneezing. Maybe he sounds obnoxious to you, but he was well-liked. In fact, I have to confess that Bill and I had an affair. At least for him it was an affair. He was married, and I wasn't. At the time, I couldn't explain why I was doing it, even to myself, and I ended up breaking it off nearly a year ago. Now I think that it was a very basic, almost animal impulse— Bill hadn't changed, hadn't stifled himself. The rest of us, once we realized that the Greys could and would dismantle our brains as easily as they did our weapons, well, we put our heads down and kept our mouths shut. Bill didn't do that. If a Grey asked him to repeat something or show him something, Bill just did it. Once a group of us was out to dinner and Bill did a little shuffle step when our table was ready— When a gray asked him about it, he did a full tap routine that he remembered from college. I remember I wanted to applaud, but I didn't dare to. No one did. The day that Bill disappeared, we know he went to his lunch. We know he was lively there, but there were no grays, so there were no real problems. Then he left to walk back to the office, but he never arrived. Everyone just assumed that he'd had a few drinks and decided to call it a half day. That night, I had a dream about Bill. He was in a gray hive, having his voice box replaced with a thoughtcaster. He wasn't in any pain, but he was crying. The next day, one of my colleagues confided to me that he'd seen the same nightmare. I didn't tell him about mine. No one has seen Bill since then. Maybe they took him. I used to think those stories were just paranoia, but I'm less sure of that now. On the other hand, maybe he was depressed and threw himself in the river. Either way, he's gone. About a week after that happened, I went home and found a gray in my apartment. It was standing at the big picture window, looking out. It didn't turn around when I came in. So after my initial shock, I quietly changed my clothes and started dinner, hoping it might leave. It just stood by the window while I ate in front of the TV. Mostly I watched the gray, trying to catch some movement, some sign of a pulse or breath, but it was like a statue bathed in the albedo of light from downtown. After the news, I turned off the TV and realized that the gray had turned to face me, It began the ritual of approach. I'd been dreading this, but what could I do? Fight it? Reason with it? I used to own a gun, but after Wichita, I turned it in. I had never had a personal encounter with a gray before, but we all know the protocol, don't we? So I stood and put my arms up and waited with my heart pounding. Bill used to say that all grays walk like they're just learning how to dance— like they're questioning every step they take. I thought of that as the gray stepped towards me, thought of Bill, and all at once I was overtaken by missing him. I laughed, and almost immediately my laugh turned into hiccups and crying. If the gray had put out its arms, I would have hugged it. Bill used to give such good hugs. The doctor paused to wipe her eyes and blow her nose. What did the gray do? I asked it just watched me melt down for a while she said i had my my nose was running and i had mucus everywhere i was wailing it just stood there and stared at me after a while i started to calm down and i went into the kitchen to make some tea when i looked again the gray was gone it's like they want to watch us suffer i said i don't think that's it she said "'I think they really are trying to understand. "'I don't think any of them has ever felt alone. "'I hate them,' I said. "'The doctor nodded and made a note. "'So do I.' "'The next day I was released from the clinic. "'They gave me a prescription for something, "'but I threw it away with my Iberry, "'emptied my account from an ATM, "'and took a train to O'Hare.' There I caught a bus to Madison, where I managed to find a ride as far as Baraboo. There's a sandwich place there where the truckers stop. It used to have a dining area, but it's closed off now. They have a drive-in on one side, walk-up service on the other. I picked out one of the rigs parked outside and waited next to it for the driver to bring his lunch back to the cab. He was older, tall, and looked Asian. Gray stubble covered the top of his head, but his face was hairless. Hi, I'm Berto, I said. I was wondering if you were headed west. Taking on hitchers is against company policy, he said. Does that mean you won't do it? I showed him some money. I can pay. Let's talk inside, he said, and unlocked the cab. I had an uncle who drove truck, and I rode with him a couple of times. But that was a long time ago, before the greys. I remembered the square cab and the noise of the engine. The new rigs had curves like sports cars and never made a sound. Fully consistent with all the new regulations the greys made necessary, the trucker said. Mostly that means soundproofing. Horns and sirens get piped through, but otherwise nothing gets in or out. Even if the engine wasn't a whisper, we wouldn't be able to hear it. He pulled a little lunch tray out from behind his seat and set his food on it. He shut his eyes and was silent a moment before he started unwrapping his food. Do you believe in God? he asked. I took my time, answering. I used to. Before the greys, you mean. Pretty much. He took a bite of his sandwich, chewed it carefully, and swallowed it. I never did, he said and took another bite. I waited. Not until Wichita. You were at Wichita? His mouth was full, but he nodded. I looked out at the parking lot, at the people eating in their cars and their trucks, keeping a respectful distance from each other. Not a gray in sight, but they had trained us well. I was driving a food services truck at that time, he said after a while. And I had just made a delivery at the convention center there, where the gun show was taking place. Don't ask me what started it, because I don't know any more than anyone else about that. I just—I was pulling away, and I saw it in the rear view, saw the roof just lift off the place. I stopped the truck so I could see what was happening. Things were flying out from under the roof, spinning out in all directions. Some of them fell on my truck— Machine screws, clouds of dark powder, little metal rings, pieces of firearms and tables and displays, I guess, disassembled bulletproof vests, and unrolled paper cups and ceiling panels peeled back into their constituent layers. I was worried about damage to my cab, so I was about to get out of there when I glanced in the rear view and saw people streaming out of the hall, and a gray appeared in front of them, and they all just exploded? No, he said. I know that's what it looked like later in the pictures, but it was more like when you take apart an engine or a rifle. Were you ever in the army? No. Well, the point is, you can take an M-16 apart and put it back together and it'll still work. You can't do that with a human being. He put his sandwich down. After a minute, he went on. I saw that. And I threw the truck into gear. But then I looked out, and there was a gray blocking the road in front of me, just standing there, arms at its sides, big eyes looking at me and probably a million other things at once. I suppose if I'd been able to connect it to what was happening behind me, I'd have tried to run it down. But my training kicked in, and I stood on the brakes. We learn early on how deadly a rig can be. I used to have nightmares about running people down. Not that a Grey is a person, exactly. I stopped, though, and then I thought, now I'm going to die. There was no way I was going to get the rig moving at any speed before the Grey did whatever it was going to do. I don't carry a weapon in the truck, and considering what was happening in the convention center, I thought that was probably a good thing. The only thing I could think to do was to put my hands up like it was pointing a gun at me, you know? He laughed. Which, you know, is pretty much the same as giving them permission to approach you. Well, it didn't come any closer. But the words, I saw them in my mind, you know, just for a second. Looked like a road sign, like, Eau Claire, next three exits. But it said, Today's friend urges you to leave this area. And then it disappeared. So you left? I floored it. Drove to Oklahoma City with the radio going crazy. Never picked it up. Told my supervisor I'd left before anything strange had happened. Tried not to read about it or listen to conversations about it. Tried to figure out why I wasn't disassembled like all those other people. Maybe you were just lucky. Luck is a word we use for things that aren't worth thinking about too much, the trucker said. Luck is bingo. When it comes to life and death, luck doesn't explain anything away. I shook my head. It's just that we can't process death, not really. That's why we invented God. Maybe, he said. Or maybe the Greys are God. They're all powerful, all knowing. We can't hurt them. I think God has to be able to create, not just destroy. Oh, they're creating something here, something we don't understand. They're changing us. Listen, I'm telling you this because I can see you're running from them. One of them, maybe more than one, was inside your head, and you're looking for some place where they're not. I've seen it before. But they're God. You can't go anywhere where they can't reach you. So you're not going to take me anywhere? I just want to make sure you understand that you can't get away. Well, I said, I'm going to try. He carefully rewrapped his sandwich and set it in a cooler under his seat, then rolled down his window and shook his tray clean outside. I'm going as far as Seattle, he said. I can drop you anywhere between here and there. You got a place in mind? I'll know it when I see it, I said. I took the ride as far as Belvedere, South Dakota, The greys tend to stick to the cities, so I thought it would be safe to look around and stretch my legs while I decided what to do next. There was a little pizza joint there with a few people sitting together in twos or threes, talking low. I stared at them as I walked in, then sat at the bar behind a beer that the bartender had already poured for me. You'll like it, he told me. He was slim and streamlined. Long hair pulled back, dark mustache slicked back, crooked nose like the bump on a fighter jet. He had a way of standing behind the bar, when idle. His head tipped back on his shoulders, elbows bent, wrists hanging loose. He reminded me of an otter. The beer was a smooth ale with a nice bite at the finish. You were right, I told him, and ordered a mushroom slice. He put the order in on a computer register, the type that used to beep. I have a sense about these things, he said. Beer? He nodded. I know what people are going to order the moment I see them. Someone like you, who's never been here before, I know what you'd like best. I guess you develop a sense for that kind of thing if you attend tend bar for long enough. No, I never did. Done this for twelve years. Never could even remember what my regulars drank until about three years ago. Something just clicked? No. He leaned his fists on the cooler behind the bar. "'Tell me something about yourself,' he said. "'I understood that he was seeking an exchange. "'He would tell me his story if I told him one about me. "'I took another sip of the beer, for courage. "'I used to be an architect,' I said. "'A long time ago?' "'About four days now.' "'My hand drifted to my waist, where my berries should have been. "'I was working on this project,' I told him. "'The firm was hired by the Greys or by a company owned by a company working for them. They wanted a proposal for a hive design, terrestrial housing for greys. There were all these requirements, as little direct sunlight as possible, cool but without any noisy mechanical ventilation, private, secure, all those things. So I had this idea to basically excavate a high-rise out of the ground, right? dig down 30 or 40 stories and build the living space into the walls. Not a new concept, but the idea I had was that we make it narrower at the top. Usually you'd want it wide at the top, let in as much sun as possible, but obviously not in this case. And then I thought, why not make it like a tree, like an oak tree? The outline of one, you understand? I mean, they, I don't know that the greys would see it at all. Maybe no one would once it was actually built, but it's there in the concept drawings in the blueprints. An enormous oak in bloom, hanging upside down from the surface. It's... We were calling it negative space. It was a code name, because obviously there would be other proposals. It was a competition. I heard how fast I was talking, and then I stopped. I checked the mirror behind the bar to see if any grays had come in. None had... It was a good idea, I said more slowly. My boss liked it. I think we might have won the contest. All of that was true, and only four days ago negative space had been the most important thing in my life. Part of me wanted that back. Will they go ahead and enter it without you? The bartender asked. For some reason I was taken aback by the idea. I didn't want to think that the firm was just another hive. I wanted to think that when I left, something was lost. Maybe they will, I said. You ever met a gray? The bartender asked. Yeah. Ever been inside one of their hives? No. I have. He nodded as he said it, as if someone else was speaking. Three years ago. I used to drink, he said. I used to drink back here while I worked. And then get serious after clothes. I was what you call a functional alcoholic. So one night I'm out there on the hills with a bottle and a half of Jack in me and howling at the moon, you know. I was with some friends, but I'd wandered away. I remember thinking how I felt lonely sitting there by the fire with my friends, so I got up and wandered off. I remember the stars had been out, but at some point it got cloudy and I was stumbling along in complete darkness. And I fell, or I lay down on the side of a hill, and the hill opened up and let me inside. The inside of the hill was like a fancy hotel lobby. There were plants and fountains and stuff, and there were greys everywhere. I mean, I was so drunk that I thought I was a gray. They didn't pay any attention to me at first. And then it was like everything froze, and they were all looking at me, and they took me apart. He picked up a glass, filled it with water from the soda gun, and drank it down in one long gulp. A waitress brought my slice to the end of the bar. The soles of the bartender's shoes made a squick noise on the mats as he walked over to retrieve it. The pizza was hot, and the cheese stuck together in a molten mass. I took one bite and had to reel in most of the topping, leaving the crust wounded and half naked. I gulped at the beer and managed to cool the cheese but ruin the taste of everything. They took you apart, I said once my mouth was clear. Yeah, the bartender said, and picked up a cloth to wipe down the bar. Then they put me back together. The right way. They fixed me. I used to have a bad knee, but it's fine now. I don't limp. I quit drinking, and I never even broke a sweat. But I know what other people want to drink. I've never heard of them putting someone back together. The bartender shrugged. Did any of them say anything to you? No, they just... He lifted his hands, then dropped them. They just felt sorry for me. Did you ever break your leg or anything? The way people look at you when you're on crutches, like they're so glad they're not you. But they feel guilty for feeling that way. It was like that. I ran my tongue across the burns on the roof of my mouth. What happened afterward? I woke up in my bed at home. Two days had passed. Never found the hive again. A group of children and parents arrived and took over one end of the pizza parlor. Several tables had been pushed together and covered with white paper tablecloths, balloons tethered to the centerpieces, a party hat on every plate. The children were at first shy, sitting in the two big chairs kicking their feet. But soon one of them announced that pepperoni was his favorite, and the others joined in. I could see the parents' tension in their restless eyes and pressed lips. But gradually they too began to relax. There were eight small children in the group, perhaps nine or ten years old, but among them were two who sat quietly beside each other. One wore a party hat and watched the activity at the table through round glasses that were too large for his face. The other held her hat in her lap, perhaps because there was already a pink ribbon woven into her dark braided hair. They observed without participating. Once the girl laughed at something one of the other children did, and the boy looked at her curiously until she was calm again. I finished my pizza, watching the boy and girl watch the rest of their table. Perhaps there was a gray or two nearby, watching all of us. Was that why these children were the way they were? Was the trucker right? Were the greys changing us, hunting certain qualities out of us, like tusks out of African elephants? Or were these just the sort of quiet, reserved children who had always been among us, growing up to be quiet, reserved adults? What did they do to you? What? The greys, said the bartender, what did they do to you? I was still thinking about the question when someone came inside and a bird slipped in the door. It was a sparrow, a tiny dusty brown thing, jittery and fragile. It landed on the bar and jerked its head back and forth a few times, chirping. Then it flew up to the ceiling and landed in the wooden rafters there. It trilled its anxiety at the room, and the noise level went up in response, In particular, the kids at the birthday party. The quiet boy and the quiet girl were looking up and laughing with the rest. But I found myself seeing all of them as the bird must see them inexplicable, indistinguishable, inscrutable, unknowable in every way save the vague sense of potential danger that each of them carried. Today's friend wishes to hear your
1: song. There you go, don't Copyright is David's. David, thank you so much. So, that story, if you're interested, came out in Asimov Science Fiction, July 2013. Bang up the date there for the sofa. Well done there, Adam. And a big thank you to Adam as well for narrating that story. Oh, fantastic, sir. Thank you very much. So, what I'm going to do now, like I say, there'll be probably an announcement next week, maybe the week after, I'll try and get myself sorted out. But I'm going to give you a little clue what's happening to Sofa North. And if you get it from this clue, drop us an email, because you, you deserve a pat on the back. It's fun If you can get this from this little clip where I'm going to play you, well then there you go. Now then, you've reached the voicemail of Gary Main. Do you know who I am? All right? Leave a message and then feed him to the pigs, Harold, and get us a cup of tea. ta There you go. What's happening in the Sofa Noughts? Anyone tell me that from... <laughs> and yes, that was the fantastic Mr Nick Camp. Nick, you're a star. You're a star, sir. That is Starship Sofa's 310. Put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. And like I say, I hope you'll join us next week for a big announcement on sophonauts. Yes, months in the planning. Months, still months to go. Well, probably one, maybe a little bit more. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
0: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa Evacuation Procedure Machine. Shuttle set for wash. will be opened in three, two, one.